Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. It's been a while. Uh, It was a beautiful thing three weeks ago, uh, talking about surrender in this place. Um, You got to hear hear multiple voices talking about that. I I, I saw a lot of your responses on that night. That's awesome. Last two weeks ago, uh, House of Prayer, where just all these different spaces that were able to spread out and pray. Um, Beautiful. I'm I'm glad to be back in Capon with you guys. Just to make sure that you caught it from what Hannah said, in two weeks, during finals week, Uh, Different time, different place, uh, different night. So it'll be Monday night, 7 o'clock at Calvary Baptist, which isn't far from campus. Uh, But it's a beautiful night of us just doing basically Christmas hymns together. So less than an hour. So I know if you're like, man, it's finals week. I don't know if I can get away for that. Don't miss out. It's really a beautiful tradition, and we keep it short so that uh, it's just a beautiful night where we get to celebrate Christmas together before we're all scattered to the winds. But Monday night, 7 o'clock at Calvary Baptist, which is a different place than we've had it in previous years, for those of you who've been around. So a um, couple different things as we uh, start in tonight. I'm curious, how many of you, uh, like high school or even now, involved in like theater or musicals in any way? Any, any of you? Handful of you. All right. More than I thought. Uh, yeah, these aren't people who are shy. Sometimes when I ask questions, people are like, I don't know. But if I ask musical people, they're like, mm-hmm. I'm all over it. All right, so especially for you guys in the room tonight, uh, this is for everybody, but especially for you guys, I want to know if you recognize this chorus, okay? And if you do, I just want you to shout out the musical that it comes from, okay? You're not going to be shy, but I'm asking you not to be shy. You ready? Close every door to me. My goodness, y'all are crazy people. (laughs) All right, let me keep going. I want you to hear the lyrics. You ready? Close every door to me. Sing it with me. Hide all the world from me. Bar all the windows and shut out the light. (laughs) Do what you want with me. Hate me and laugh at me. Darken my daytime and torture my... There we go. All right. So if you couldn't hear him, that comes from a musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, all right, which is a musical written by Andrew Lloyd Webber about the life of Joseph. And the reason why I open with that, uh, you might not have known that I was a theater guy way back in the day. My, my yeah, the dark ages, Okay. Um, but uh, this, in this particular musical, which they wrote about Joseph's life, and Joseph is our turning point tonight. It's his life that we're going to look at. Uh, so this musical, which is, which is fun but also kind of goofy, like is about Joseph's entire life. That song, that song, he's actually, I actually have a, a picture. If you see it in, in a musical form, this is what it opens onto because it's Joseph in prison. And oftentimes, they'll, they'll perform it where he's actually behind bars singing those lines, close every door to me, in this depressing song that he sings out in this dark moment where Joseph spent years in prison, literally as a part of his life, in Pharaoh's prison. And that's the turning point that we get to look at tonight 
in Joseph's story. That moment of what gets him, well, into prison and out of prison. But to do that, I need to tell you a little bit about Joseph's story. And there's a lot. I mean, it's unpacked in Genesis, and I, there's no way I can read it all because it's like chapter, and cha- it's like, I don't know, six to ten chapters of stuff that walks through his life. And we're talking about 3,800 years ago, you guys. Joseph, I need you to understand, Joseph isn't a made-up story. This is about a real person's life. We see, we know his ancestry before him. We know his ancestry after him. This is a part of Israel's history. I mean, that we're talking about in terms of uh, Joseph is, is, he and his brothers formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so I put a little marker in there because if you think about the story of Abraham in our timeline that sits up top there, and you think about the story of Moses, Joseph is actually right smack dab in the middle between those two stories. Okay, and so if you go back all the way um, to his childhood, we, we, Jacob is his dad, and Jacob has 12 sons. They're not all from the same wife, but he has 12 sons, and Joseph is the second youngest of those. All right? Joseph also happens to be Jacob's favorite by far. He's not quiet about it. He's not secret about it. And, and that starts to develop jealousy to the point of hatred with the other brothers. You need to know that about Joseph's life. Not through any fault of his necessarily, but Jacob's favoritism. Any of you guys have the family dynamic where when you open Christmas presents sometimes, like, there's some major discrepancies between siblings? <laughs> Y'all have <laughs> Where you're like, oh, this is a really nice sweater. And then you're like watching your brother open an iPad. And you're like, interesting. That's interesting. Um, that's, that was Joseph's family in a nutshell. As a matter of fact, the drama begins, and, and what the musical is named after, is that Genesis tells us that, that Jacob gives Joseph this beautiful, colorful coat, coat of many colors. And the rest of the brothers see that, and they're like, oh, so now he gets to display it. Now not only do we all know it, but he gets to display it. And there's just this resentment and bitterness that is a part of Joseph's story. And so this comes to a head when Joseph has two dreams, okay? He has two, <laughs> has two dreams, and, uh, and he tells his brothers, in my opinion, very unwisely tells his brothers about these two dreams. And the first is that there are all these, he, he goes to them and he says, hey, you guys won't believe this dream that I just had. There were all these bundles of wheat. We were all gathering bundles of wheat in the field and mine stood up and all of yours stood up too and gathered around it and started bowing down to it. Isn't that crazy, you guys? Not well received at all from the brothers who already know that he's the golden child in the family. And that's, that is exactly what he tells them. All of yours, all of your bundles started bowing down to mine. Isn't that weird, you guys? And then he has a second dream, as if the first dream wasn't bad enough. He has a second dream. The second dream, he goes and says, you guys, the sun and the moon and 11 stars, he has 11 brothers, bowed to me bowed to me, not well received by his brothers. So as if the, the weird field, you know, the weird bushels of grain dream wasn't bad enough. Now the universe, Joseph believes, he's seen in a dream that the universe bows to him. And at that point, their hatred goes off the deep end. They despise him. They want him dead. They want him gone. So there is this moment they have where they are out 
that Jacob is not around, the dad is not around, but they are out in a field with Joseph, and the brothers want to kill him, and Reuben, one of the brothers, is not, he's not okay with that, and, and so they decide, while they're trying to figure out what to do with him, to throw him in this pit. And Reuben is thinking, I can come back later and I can rescue him. And I can't even tell you guys all the details in the story because there's just too much. But Reuben wants to come back later and rescue him. They're arguing over what to do with him. And meanwhile, this group of, of travelers, of slave traders from Midian comes by and the brothers make a deal with them to sell Joseph and, and traffic him. They sell him as a slave and he's gone. They take that coat of many colors they put some animal blood on it, and they take it back to the dad and say there was this terrible accident. He got killed by a wild animal. So in their minds, Joseph is gone. The dreams were it. That's what they call him, the dreamer. They make fun of the dreamer. The dreamer is gone. We got rid of him. They they didn't have to kill him. There's no blood on their hands. They sold him into slavery, and he can just be gone, and Reuben was too late to rescue him. And so these Midianite traders take Joseph all the way to Egypt, That's the next part of his story, the next act in his play, to a guy named Potiphar. We're in Genesis 39 at this point. Potiphar is a guard. He's a captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army, a very important dude, and he buys Joseph as a slave. Now, one of the things that you need to understand about about Joseph is, for whatever reason, everywhere he goes, he's super faithful, he's well-liked, he takes responsibility, And he just earns the favor everywhere he goes. So he starts as a slave in Potiphar's house, and very quickly Potiphar notices how responsible he is, how he's taking care of all of his affairs. And so Potiphar puts him in charge of everything, his entire house, everybody else, all of his finances, everything. He puts Joseph in charge. But Genesis 39 also tells us that Joseph was a pretty handsome dude, and Potiphar's wife started noticing him and actually trying to seduce him. And he didn't want anything to do with it. And so he rebuffs her multiple times. And then at one day, they're in the house alone together. And she literally grabs him by the shirt and tries to pull him into bed. And Joseph's like, I'm out. And he leaves his shirt in her hands, pops his shirt off and runs. (laughs) I'm out. Potiphar's wife isn't very happy about that. So she comes up with a story to Potiphar and says, he tried to sexually assault me. And I have his shirt as proof that he grabbed me, I grabbed his shirt, I screamed, he ran. And Potiphar believes this, believes his wife, and so he sends Joseph to prison. So Joseph has done nothing wrong. I mean, at this point, all he did was share two stupid dreams to his brothers that he shouldn't have, all right? But everything else in this, he's been faithful and wise. And it got him sold into slavery, and now we find him in prison, Close every door to me. That's the spot. He's in that spot. So in prison, it just keeps going, you guys. In prison, Joseph is so faithful and trustworthy that the warden puts him in in charge of the prison. As a prisoner, he's put in charge of the prison underneath the warden's oversight. He's in charge of all the other prisoners and everything else that's happening because that's just the way everything has gone. There were two other guys with him in prison. One was a baker and one was a cupbearer to Pharaoh. They got in trouble. We don't, I, don't even, I don't remember if it tells us why. I don't think it tells us why in there what they did, but they got thrown into prison. And so while Joseph is now in charge of the prison, these two other inmates in there, they have dreams. Very specific dreams. 
And so they come to Joseph, and Joseph's like, well, I, I kind of actually know a thing or two about dreams. Do you want me to explain them to you, to interpret them for you? I mean, like, he believes that they're prophetic dreams. And so, um, so they come to him, and the cupbearer says, uh, I dreamt of a vine that had three branches that budded and turned into grapes, which turned into wine, and I gave those to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, that's a good dream. That means in three days, you're actually going to be released from prison, and you're going to go work for Pharaoh again. You're going to be his cupbearer again. It's good news for you. And the baker gets pretty excited about that, so he shares his dream too. The baker says, I have three baskets on my head, and in the top basket was food for Pharaoh, but the birds keep eating it out of the basket. And Joseph's like, ooh, bad news. In three days, you're going to be executed. Your head's going to be removed from your body. Not as good news for you. And Joseph's uh, interpretations are correct. In three days, the cupbearer is released back to Pharaoh, and in three days, the baker is executed. And Joseph stays in prison for at least two more years. Okay? And I need you to hear that part. That's important for what we're talking about tonight. He stays in prison for at least two more years, not knowing what the future holds. He hasn't been in control of any of this. All he has done is try to be faithful in his family, sold into slavery, faithful in the prison, rotting in prison. But the craziest thing happens. The craziest thing happens. Pharaoh himself has a dream. Actually, two. And he goes to his wise men and says, I had this crazy dream, and I believe, I believe it means something. It was so specific. I think it means something, and none of them have any idea. I mean, they're probably a little nervous that if they get it wrong, they're going to be put in prison or killed. And so nobody's willing to tackle it. And the cupbearer finally says, hey, Pharaoh, actually, I knew a guy in prison who's pretty good with dreams. And that's where our text sits. I know it's taken me a while to get there, but man, Joseph's story is a good one. So Pharaoh calls Joseph into his service and says, I'm going to tell you what these dreams are. You tell me what they mean. And Joseph responds with this to Pharaoh. Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The seven healthy cows, I haven't really told you the dream, but it's about these cows and wheat. Some of them are healthy, some of them are not on both sides, okay? You'll pick it up in this. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it, for God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity through the land of Egypt. You hear that? Seven years of prosperity. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good, the good years will be erased. As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been declared, decreed by God, and he will soon make them happen. Therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead 
and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away. Guard it so there'll be food in the cities. That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man, so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God's revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly there's no one else as intelligent or wise as you are, you'll be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. So again, Again, just like at Potiphar's house where he was faithful and he rose to the top, and just like in prison where he was faithful and he rose to the top, even under Pharaoh's direction, who was not a good man, (laughs) his faithfulness brings him to the top in that. And it's not part of our story tonight, but just for the record, that famine will be the time that his family actually comes to Egypt And the people begin, like, that starts the story of how the people of God end up in Egypt and are enslaved, and 400 years, Moses will be a part of taking them out of Egypt under Pharaoh's hand. So it's like you see part of the Bible's history all start to kind of come together there, and Joseph is a huge part of that. All right, so what in the world do we notice about Joseph's life? Well, the first thing, there's just three quick things. These aren't really my points for tonight, just things I want to pull out and throw at you. One is the beginning, his moment with his brothers, uh, a lack of self-awareness cost him dearly, okay? Those, these dreams that he had were, were given by the Lord, but what a stupid mistake to bring these out in front of his brothers and flaunt them. A lack of understanding of himself and a lack of understanding of others cost him dearly in the beginning of his story. That's one thing I just want to throw out there on the table for you. Second is this, even though God granted Joseph amazing favor, terrible things happened to him. Now, I believe in this idea in Scripture that if you, if you are wise and you behave wisely, wise things tend to happen back to you. That's sort of like, the, we see it in Proverbs a lot. I wrote down Proverbs 3.35, the wise inherit honor, but fools are put to shame. And so if you want to live a fool's life, if you want to make really bad decisions, those things are going to bounce back on you hard. It's just, that is a scriptural promise. And if you make wise decisions, there is a tendency for wise things to be returned to you. So if you love other people really well, it gives them a desire to love you back. But one of the things that we learn from Joseph's life is that is not a guarantee. You are not guaranteed because you live wisely that someone will not hate you. You are not guaranteed because you live wisely that circumstances, we live in a broken world. And so circumstances may still go poorly for you, just as they did for Joseph, even if you do the right thing at the right time. That's something I notice from Joseph's life. And the third thing is that God gives him this weird gift, Joseph the dreamer. And dreams are what get him in trouble in the beginning. Dreams are what create that connection that he ends up having with the cupbearer, which end up putting him in front of Pharaoh. And exercising that gift with Pharaoh ends up launching him into the second highest position in Pharaoh's court. And so God's given him these gifts that he needs to exercise at the right times in these right places. And that is a huge turning point for him. Now the difference is when he exercised that gift in prison the first time with the cupbearer, he still spent at least two years still in prison. 
And when he exercises that gift with Pharaoh, as it turns out, it launches him into this position of authority. Tonight, my friends, I want you to hear that you have gifts. You have supernatural giftings that the Father has given you. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life over to him, if you said, God, you know what? My life belongs to you. We're told that he gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You don't have to beg for it. It is a promise that we have, God's enduring presence with us, and that God has gifted you, you, you individually, uniquely. He's given you spiritual gifts that are specific to you, that are different than every other person in this room, that are different than any other, every other person in the body of Christ. And it's important for you to understand those. So there are people in the room here, I mean, I want you to hear me. As a Christian, we're all supposed to be compassionate, right? But there are some people who are gifted in compassion by God in unique ways that I can't, I wish compassion came out of me the way that I see those people who are gifted in compassion. And we're all supposed to do evangelism. We're all supposed to talk about the love of Jesus. But there are some people that evangelism just like oozes out of them. They, they're talking about Jesus, and, and I don't even understand how they got there. It's like, there's just, they're gifted in that. And there are people who are gifted in teaching. And there are people who are gifted in discernment and wisdom and knowledge. There's all these different gifts. There's like four, at least four different passages in Scripture that address a number of these gifts. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have them. This is the way Paul talks about these gifts. He says, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. So he's giving us the metaphor of the body, like the human body, right? Talking about the body. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, gross, okay? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. That's an important piece, too. You see, you don't get to decide this one on your own. He has figured out which part you are, and he has uniquely designed you so that you are a part of the body. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. You you individually, you are that kind of a part. Now, here's, there are a bunch of lessons that we can learn from the body, but, but I want you to hear these specifically. You are crucial. You really are. That's not just church or pastory talk. You are crucial. This is part of the message that Paul is trying to give to you. I know that the, the pinky finger or your pinky toe doesn't feel that important, but, if, but if, if you drop something heavy on it right now, it would feel important right? It's connected to you. It's a part of your body. If I told you right now, I'd really like your pinky toe, you'd be like, you will not have my pinky toe. I will not give that over. It's, not, it's like, you might not have thought it meant much before, but now it's precious to you. Be like, you will not take that from me, right? Because that's a part of your body. It is unique, and it is crucial. And I want you to understand that in this day and age, there are a lot of people who are like, you know what? I don't need the church, and the church don't need me. It's just my personal relationship with Jesus. That, there is no whisper of that in the Bible. The Bible actually is the opposite extreme where there's a dependence. There's a picture of dependence. I depend on you, and you depend on me. If I'm an eyeball, and I say, you know what? Forget you guys. I'm off on my own. I don't get to experience the sense of touch because you're a hand, 
and I've separated myself from that. And you don't get to experience the gift of sight because you're a hand. And we need each other that way. Paul's trying to beat this into our heads of this is a mutual experience where you have been given gifts and the body needs your gift and you need the body's gifts. There is an interdependence that our culture, I mean, like culturally, there's just such an individualism that we fight that and we'll be like, nope, I'm the body. You aren't the body. You're a part of the body. And the body needs you and you need it. And that means that you are crucial, but it also means that all these other people that you look at are also crucial. So that's not a lesson of like, oh, I'm pretty awesome. It's a lesson of we are all crucial. And there's a lesson in diversity there too. You don't have to compare yourself to other people because you aren't other people. You're yourself, uniquely wired the way that God made you with your own set of experiences and your own talents and your own skills, the way that God wants to develop them and use them. It's such a beautiful picture that we lose out when we're like, ah, nah, my personal relationship with Jesus. It's like, well, yes, God came to save you, but you are a part of a larger body that actually forms his bride. What a crucial picture, God says, that he's developing in you, these gifts that he's given you. Well, what do we, how do we use them? What are they for? Ephesians 4.12 says that God gave these gifts so the body of Christ might be built up to prepare God's people for works of service is the where it starts. I should start there. So there's this sense of one. He gives them to us to serve so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity. There's a unity together in knowledge and faith in the Son of God, attaining maturity. So there's this sense of togetherness, there's a sense of unity, there's a sense of maturity, there's a sense of service. All of that carries with it a humility. It's not focused on self. Hey, look at my gifts. It's focused on look at how my gifts fit into the body. Look at how the body gets to serve because I'm a part of it. Paul sets the tone for us in that. Now, there was a retreat years and years ago uh, and I want to borrow an analogy. We had a, a guy named John come in and talk, I think, at a winter retreat that we did. And the analogy that he gave for spiritual gifts and really spiritual formation, like when I think of what does it mean for me to give my gifts back to God? What does that look like? This was the metaphor that he gave us, okay? And I thought it was great. It really resonated with me then, so I thought I'd pop it in there tonight. We'll see if it works for you. I don't know. Okay, but he talks about surfing because the reality with the Holy Spirit, too, is we do not manipulate him. We're, like, we are not just like a baby with a power tool, you know, where the Holy Spirit is like, we're, we're doing what we want to do with him. No, the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, is a wind who blows where he pleases, when he pleases, okay? And the, the thing that I loved about surfing, and I, I've, I tried surfing once, okay? I was on a board that was like 15 feet long. It was gigantic. It was like two pieces of plywood it felt like I was standing on, and I could not stand up on that, all right? So I've got, I'm, if you think that I'm coming at you as a surfer, I am not at all. But as I understand surfing, this is what it looks like, all right? Uh, most of surfing doesn't look like this. Most of surfing is laying on a board on flat water, all right, waiting. Waiting for what? the perfect wave, right? And as you're laying there, if you are too far out before that wave breaks, that, wave, that swell is going to pass you by and it's going to break way out in front of you. And if, you, if you're too far in on the beach, 
then that wave is going to crash on top of you and destroy you. And so the goal is, as a surfer, is for you to paddle and position yourself so that when the right wave comes, you are in the right place at the right time to ride that wave. That made so much sense to me when I realized that a lot of the Christian life, even in moments of waiting, is preparing myself so that when the Holy Spirit wants to move, I'm ready. It's not my power. I don't create the wave. If you look at this guy right here, he is not creating the energy that he sits on. All he's doing is riding it. He was in the right place at the right time. He paddled and he positioned so that when God is ready to show up and when God is ready to bring revival and when God wants to move in your friend's life and when God wants to shake this campus, you don't miss it. I want to surf all the time, but that's not the way that surfing works. There's paddling and there's positioning and there's waiting. Joseph was paddling and positioning for years in a prison, exercising his gifts the right way, and he didn't know what the future held until God was like, hey, today you have a meeting with Pharaoh. Do you want to know why Joseph was ready? Because he had been paddling and positioning for years, being faithful in Potiphar's house, being faithful in prison, until finally the day comes where all of that matters. You may feel like you're in a season of waiting. You may feel like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I don't know what this is supposed to look like. I'm just, I'm just taking classes. I don't know. Well, Right now is a season then of paddling and positioning that you should be serious about, that you should think about and understand so that when, the, when God wants to move and God wants to sprint, you're like, all right, let's go. I've been waiting for you, Lord. I've been humbling myself so at the right time you can exalt me. So a couple of prerequisites, because I do want to talk about what you can do in this season, even if this season is paddling and positioning for you. But a couple of prerequisites are this. Before you surf, nurture a desire to learn and grow. So there's this sense of, God, I am willing to change. God, I am willing to grow. You show me what direction I need to grow. I will head there. If you can't do this, if you can't have this internal idea of there are changes inside of me and I need to let God make them, none of what I'm getting ready to say is going to make sense or it will even be healthy for you. Because if you have the attitude of, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, then the rest of this doesn't matter. So first, there's this sense of, I need to learn and I need to grow. And second, I need to live a submitted life. And when I say submitted, I mean to the Lord and to other people. Because this isn't a journey that we're supposed to be on our own. I already told you, we're a part of a body. We need the body. The body needs us. But I will tell you guys this. There are a lot of things that I thought about myself as a 20-year-old that I have found out in the decades to follow it that aren't true. Things that I thought about my personality, things that I thought about my temperament, that the longer I've been married, the longer I've sat under other people's mentorship, I realized I didn't perceive myself right. I didn't understand myself correctly. And I needed them and the Lord as a mirror in my life to help me see myself for who I really was. So if we have these prerequisites then it's these three things I want to ask you to do. And I think, I, like, I know that some of you are like note takers and some of you aren't note takers. It's fine. I think these are things that would be great for you to come back later. So even if you just snap a pic with your phone, there's a bunch of questions on here that I think are good self-reflection for you. So these three screens I think would be good for you to have later, okay? The first is this. I would ask you tonight to learn your own story. 
Learn your own story. And you may be like, hey, Ben, it's me. It's my story. I know my own story. Nobody knows my story better than me. I might beg to differ. You, you, many of you actually don't know your own story. Many of you have just been sort of a branch on the river, and that current has taken you a bunch of different places that you don't even fully understand. It's time to understand. It's time for some self-reflection. These are some of those questions. What have I experienced? Where do I come from? What seasons of life have been hard? Where have I been wounded? Who has wounded me? Where have those come from? What seasons of life have brought joy? What are my successes? Who are the people who've invested in me and cared for me? What part has God played in my story to this point? Who has prayed prayers for you through the years? Who are you? Sometimes when I meet with guys, uh, one of my favorite, like I, I, I often will start this way by giving them a sheet of paper and just saying, hey, give me, like just make a timeline. Give me five or three or seven, it doesn't really matter. Uh, big turning points in your life, just things that were super important to you. They could be positive, they could be negative, whatever they are, just curious. And sometimes I'll have guys in those meetings who are really good friends with each other. And guess what? Three of the five, they will have never heard from each other even though they've spent hundreds of hours together. Because that's not the kind of thing that guys talk about when they hang out, to be like, tell me about your darkest secrets. That's not, and that's not really what I'm unpacking there. In this question, it really is more like, what are the big events in your head in your life? And you may be surprised that somebody will be like, hey, actually, when I was seven and our family moved, I didn't think that was going to be a big deal, but that was a huge deal. I will tell you guys, for me, sixth grade, sixth grade was a marker for me and not a good one. My grandpa died that year, who was, who was kind of a mentor and a friend, and I'd never really experienced death quite like that before. I had a bunch of teachers who hated me. I struggled in school for the first time in my life, didn't really know who I was as an adolescent. Like, those aren't the kind of things I bring up when we're just hanging out and you're asking me, hey, Ben, how's your Tuesday going? It's like, well, I'm not going to jump back to sixth grade, but that's a turning, like, that's a big deal for me. And you may be surprised in your own life or your friends' lives when you start sitting with these questions of saying, who am I? Where did I come from? And it may raise, raise uh, questions that you have of stories that come from your mom and dad. Hey, what did this look like for you? I realized when I started processing this, my dad and I, I he loves me dearly, but we don't, he doesn't go deep. He doesn't, we don't talk about deep things, okay? So it was super interesting for me when I became an adult to be like, hey, dad, because my dad was a construction worker, builder, uh, ran his own construction company. Uh, he can do anything, or he can fix anything. Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't, there's all this stuff. I also know he got a degree from ISU uh, in special ed that he only used for like a year or two. And so like, I was like, dad, why didn't you, why, first of all, why did you go in special ed? And second of all, why didn't you stay? And my dad who normally gives me one-word answers when I ask anything deep, okay, actually had some things to say. And I realized that part of that story in his life actually overlapped part of my story. I learned some things about me in asking him those questions. There's a lot about you that you don't know. It'd be good for you to take some time, and this is part of the positioning and paddling, for you to understand your own story in a way that you could tell it to someone else. Submit it to the Lord. This is not just self-discovery, and this is also why one of the prerequisites is for you to have other wise people to understand this in. I think you will misunderstand it if other people don't have a voice in this journey. So that's the first one. Second one is this. I want you to learn why you act and think the way you do. 
This is called emotional intelligence. So some of the questions on, I have on here, why do I feel the emotions I feel? Peace, anger, joy, insecurity, shame, happiness. How do my emotions and actions help or hurt others? How do I see the world differently than others around me? Do I expect others to perceive everything from my point of view? In other words, do I project that on the people around me? Do I have a curiosity about others or am I self-focused? And again, this is all under submission to the Lord and submission to other people because other people may not see you through the same lens that you see yourself. And again, I'll just share personally, I'm an internal person. I'm a very angry person. Anger is a core emotion for me, but it's all inside. I hide it from you, all right? But internally, I process that a lot. And part of maturing for me was beginning to take that to the Lord and other people and say, why do I struggle with this so much? Why is anger such a core emotion for me? What else am I feeling that's messing with that? God, help me understand myself in this. Because I wasn't before that. It would just wash over me, and I wouldn't understand why it would make me do things or react to things or say things. It surprised me. This is part of emotional intelligence, and this is part of maturing. This is a part of the paddling and positioning of your surfing when you're waiting on the Lord. This is a part of growing toward Him. And the third thing I would give you tonight is this. I want you to learn about how God has gifted you because he has. I already talked about it, so I don't need to hit that again. How has God uniquely gifted me to be a part of his body? What parts of the church do I feel convicted about? So I'll tell you this, uh, because people will come, you know, you know our, our ministry's large, and there's all kinds of gifts that sit here. So sometimes I'll have a student who comes to me, and they'll say, hey, Ben, why don't we pray more? Why doesn't Encounter pray more as a ministry? And I'll be like, I don't know. We probably should. You should probably help us do that. Or somebody would be like, you know what? I don't think that we're reaching lost people enough. And you know what my response to that would be? You're probably right. <laughs> like, you should probably help us with that. Do you want to take a wild guess as to what those people's gifts are? All right? I don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the person who comes to me and is like, I really think we need to be praying more. Nothing happens outside of prayer. The power of prayer is important. We need to raise up deep prayer warriors in our ministry. And it's like, I think you're gifted in prayer, probably. Probably. That person who's like, we need a love for the lost. There are people on this campus who are going to hell. There are people who don't know the love and forgiveness of Christ. There are people, like, we need to reach this campus for Jesus. Want to take a wild guess as to what their gifts are? Evangelism. There are people who will say, you know what? There are people who are going to bed hungry tonight in our community. We need to figure out how to pool resources to help them. You want to take a wild guess as to what their gifts are? Service, hospitality, all these beautiful gifts that are laid out there. And so that's where this question of what parts of the church do I feel convicted about, some of those ways that we're critical when we see the body of Christ and we're like, ah, body of Christ isn't, isn't measuring up there, that's because it's our gifts, maybe in their immaturity, that are speaking out. And we need to pay attention to those convictions because it'll tell you something about how you are uniquely wired and gifted. I will also tell you this, I'm not even convinced the Bible in those four different places that talks about spiritual gifts lists them all out. They are so beautifully diverse. And so if, if I take a spiritual gifts assessment, yes, teaching shows up on the list, but there's all these other things. It's not, I'm not just a teacher. Like, 
There are all these other pieces of me that feed into that, and I need to uniquely explore that. Where do I feel joy and passion when I'm serving? What do others say about my gifts? You can take spiritual gift assessments online. I'm not recommending you do that right away. I would rather, in submission to the Lord and other people, that you go start having conversations with other people and say, hey, what do you think that I'm gifted in? That you would prayerfully take that to the Lord and sit and write, spend some time writing and say, God, how do you, how do you think that I'm gifted? Help me understand my own experiences. When have I felt great joy when I'm serving? And then, when all of that's done, then take a spiritual gifts assessment and see if it affirms some of the things that you've already struggled through. Okay? But don't let that be the first place that you run. I would ask, and I think the best place for you to do all of those things, to be like, what's my story? What's my temperament? And what are my spiritual gifts? The best place to do that are with wise friends and mentors. Don't do that in the company of fools. Wise friends and mentors should be on this journey with you. And the beautiful thing is when we pay attention to this, my friends, you do not understand because we cannot guess when the swell will come. Suddenly there's a wave in front of you and you're like, ooh, (laughs) that's the one. Suddenly, Joseph is in prison for years, and suddenly someone comes to him and says, hey, Pharaoh has some dreams. And today's the day. Today, Joseph's gifts will be seen, and they will launch him into something different than he's ever been launched into before. And you need to pay attention and paddle and position. You need to know your story You need to understand your temperament. All of that submitted to the Lord and other people. And you need to understand your spiritual giftings. And that should create a humility in you. This group needs you. Not just to spectate or just to show up. We need you to be who you were designed to be. You are an eye. Be an eye, please. We need your sight. You're a hand. Be a hand. We need the gift of touch that comes through you because you don't know when the wave's going to come. I'm going to close with a story of a friend of mine named Eric. Uh, I was involved in a campus ministry that was a lot like this at Eastern uh, when I was in college, and Eric was another dude who was, uh, was in that campus ministry too. And Eric was not a super dynamic guy. I mean, I don't know that Eric was ever a leader. If you were hanging out in a group of guys, Eric would not be the most vocal. He was kind, and he was funny, and he had a huge servant's heart. All right? But he's also, he would not have been the first guy that you would have known his name in a group of guys. All right? And um, he's not the guy, I mean, if you were going to start a movement or if you were going to start a church, like, I don't know that Eric would have been the guy that you would have grabbed. <laughs> like, just because you, if you're looking for that type A leader, it wasn't him. When, after we all graduated, um, I lost touch with Eric for a while because he became a missionary in Haiti. Um, He worked in the capital there. After a while of working with his children's home in Haiti, uh, he changed jobs and worked with this group that provided aid, humanitarian aid in Haiti, really desperate and poor place, okay? And this was right before 2010. Then in 2010, uh, an earthquake hit Haiti that killed 300,000 people. Process that number for just a second. One One of the worst natural disasters in history in terms of death count. And it displaced hundreds of thousands more, okay? And 
And I mean, international news, it was in the international news for weeks that it was just desperate. People didn't have food, they didn't have water, like Haiti's building standards are really low, and so that earthquake decimated everything. And it was, the epicenter was 15 miles from the capital of Haiti, which is why the death toll was so large. And I'm sitting at home watching, I don't know, CNN or some live broadcast, and there's like a military helicopter laying in the background and this news reporter yelling over the helicopter talking about how desperate this situation was with Eric, who's handling the international aid because, because you guys, when that thing hit and governments from all over the world were trying to figure out how to get humanitarian aid into Haiti, Eric is the one who had been doing that now for years. He'd been organizing that, just not at that scale. He'd been working with churches and doing other stuff, and then suddenly the wave hit, and Eric had been paddling and positioning for years, and he became a major conduit of how humanitarian aid flowed into Haiti in 2010 to help people. I mean, I was watching this dude who is a giant in the faith who you wouldn't have learned his name when I was in college with him. There are a bunch of you sitting in the room that God wants to use in so many ways on so many levels and you don't know when that wave is gonna come and you can't manipulate it and you can't force it, but you can paddle and you can position. And when the wave comes, you'll know what to do. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you've gifted us. We don't deserve it. But thank you, Holy Spirit, for pouring your gifts out on us. I pray that that would produce in us a posture of humility. Help us submit ourselves, Spirit, to you and to each other, that you would speak wisdom into us. Help us to know our own story. Lord, help us to know our own temperament and help us to understand the gifts that you have lavished out on us, Lord. We love you. We submit to you. We pray all this in your name, Christ. Amen. Just stand. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.